Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. For head protection. And so we came up with these mounts that you mount them on there, and then you could uh, synchronize two-way radios, so you could actually have someone practicing and someone watching and communicating back and forth without them being in the same environment. And and it sounds it sounds like well, okay, well, why would you want to do that? But we're talking about manufacturing environments when you are working on a piece of equipment that is the size of say an average size bedroom, maybe a 12 by 12. That's the size of the piece of equipment. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Dwayne Herbert. Dwayne, thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here. So I know we met uh, a few years ago at one of the Shingo Operational Excellence Conferences, and you do a lot of interesting work. So Duane, when you're trying to give somebody the short version on what you do, what do you tell them? So I am, I'm a learning and development analyst, and what I do is I help manufacturing organizations create a training culture. So that could be for change management or new technology adoption. So I'm just the guide to help them, you know, define the pathway to uh, workforce development. Yeah. So what are some of the, the larger clients that you do this for? Uh, so we, we service a large enterprise cor- corporations like GE, you know, uh, Northrop Grumman, Parker Hannafin, and, you know, the, the larger scale organizations, they actually come to us with a, a, a very definitive plan on what they're looking for. And then so it's it's kind of easy to work with those organizations because they know exactly what they want to do. And they also have the training background or should I say a training department with the background to support their strategic goals. So. Yeah, you know, so GE is a client of our consulting firm. And every once in a while, I think, what do they need us for? Like, what's you know, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. So these big clients like that, GE and Northrop Grumman, what, what, what do they need you for? So sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just not because they don't have the capability. Sometimes it's, you know, you know, being able to see through the trees, right? So, 
you know, when they're, when you're so close to the, to the process, sometimes just having an outside person come in, take a look at it actually helps build some, build some credibility behind it. And then the next thing, I think they're busy. They're, you know, they're producing their nose is, is down, you know, trying to make uh, production schedules, trying to make revenue, whatever that might be. And, and a lot of this stuff is the extra. So they just don't have the bandwidth sometimes. And other times they just need another set of eyes to kind of look at it. Yeah. So let's talk about operational excellence, for instance. What, what might that look like? You know, Northrop or GE, somebody big like this is they're, they're on their operational excellence journey, but, but they're, they want your eyes on it too. What do they want your eyes on? So what they look for that I could bring to the table, they're, they're actually looking for what, what can they do differently that conforms to best practices that other organizations might, might have actually already adopted or are in the process of adopting. And the, the last, the last thing I'll say about operational excellence is, you know, they have the, the best people working for them already. And sometimes whenever you get into a job, you get tied up in the day-to-day nuances of that job. And you have, I don't like to use this word, but I'm kind of a loss of what, what to call it, but the red tape and you know the, the bureaucracy of it all. And they need somebody to help them guide them around that, right? So how do we get past this to create the changes that we need to get us to that next level? And that, and that could be a lot of different things. That could be something as easy as, you know, we want to change, uh, we want to change the way that we look at design because we're looking at creating new features that have never been adopted before. So how do we do that, right? So how do we sit down and actually start that journey? Yeah. When you think about, when you think about, well, and let's give people a little bit of background. Can you, can you tell people a little about, about the Navy and how you got to here? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I was in the Navy and uh, I was on submarines. So one of the, one of the areas that that I that I operated in was we did uh, special operations support. So did a lot of seal delivery, and there's a lot of pictures out there now. Back when I was doing it, it was you know it was it was still pretty new. So basically, when teams would come on board, part of my job was to support the teams, be a liaisons between the submarine and and the groups, and that was everything from making sure that all the munitions were safe while we we're on board and underway. They had what they needed when they deployed. When they came back, obviously inventoried and and and, and created a, a safe environment so we could get back underway. And through that process, I went to I went to teach underwater weapons school, and I just started out in the the training industry. And the Department of Defense certified me in instructional design. And when I left, I just transitioned that after 11 years. I transitioned that into a manufacturing position as a training manager. Uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So I love it. I've, I've always loved manufacturing, but I also love training too, because I like to see that transitional that transitional piece of how you get from where you are to where you want to be. You know, I think because, you know, because it was much more, you know, classified secret kind of stuff in the past, not as many people are familiar with just how sophisticated those sealed delivery vehicles are. I um, I got to go teach a class in Nigeria. I brought a 25-year seal with me. And uh, he had been on one of those teams and, and he's kind of a mentor and friend and was explaining a few things to me that, you know, those are pretty, those are pretty sophisticated for people who don't know what they are. Can you explain it? Yeah. So, so we actually have uh, a couple of different operations that we did on submarines. So the delivery vehicle is a 
basically uh, like a mini submarine. And, and so, but they're exposed, right? So, so they're out and they're either in scuba or rebreathers, but basically it's a miniature submarine. It has all the electronics and navigation and, and they're basically battery operated. So they're super quiet and they basically deploy out of the back of the submarine. There's a tube and deploys out of the back of the submarine and then they go off and then we reconnect and then basically open the door and they drive it back in, and, and that's how we uh, deploy them. I don't want to get into too much details yeah, yeah. of it because uh, we could talk forever on this. But, yeah, very, very sophisticated. You know, what? one of the biggest things that I was impressed with whenever I was doing this, and, again, I was only the support crew for the submarine side of it, but one of the biggest things that impressed me is that these guys have to know everything. So they don't only – you think of a Navy SEAL as a combat uh, veteran – but they have to know electronics. They have to know navigation. They have to know, I mean, all of this stuff, they have to be experts in, not just know what it is or understand the concepts. They have to be experts in all of these things. So they're, my interpretation is that these are some of the smartest people in the military that, that I could imagine. You know, you talk about, you know, the SEALs, right? Sea, air, land. I mean, these guys are doing all of this. They have to know things about, you know, things about flight patterns. They have to know things about how to navigate back to a submarine in black water in the middle of the ocean, right? So how do you do that if your navigation system goes down? But we practiced it all the time and they always returned, obviously, or you'd have heard about it, but yeah, they always made it back. And it's like, wow, how do, you know, how do they even know all of this information? How do they hold all this stuff in their head? And the fact that they're going out and and the people are shooting at them all at the same time. That kind of just adds a completely another level to it. So, yeah. Yeah. For people who haven't seen these, it, it is like this, like mini submarine, but it's kind of like those, remember those cars from the eighties with T tops, you know, it's like almost yeah. a convertible, <laughs> right? So it's like, it's the funniest thing. Cause like we always think about submarines being enclosed, right? But it's like a, it's like a submarine with T tops. So you got to have all your scuba gear on cause you're open to the water, which obviously Let's them get in and out really easy, and yeah. they can obviously cover a lot longer distances than a than a human could swim. So I'm interested in you know what you do is not common. Most people have not heard a school kid say that they want to do that for their job when they grow up, right? Right. Yeah. What do you feel like are some of the biggest discoveries that you've made by specializing in this all these years? So. I think one of the biggest discoveries that I found is is how the human brain actually adapts to certain situations, and that's pretty much what I fell in love with, with about the whole process. Is and, and and it wasn't it wasn't just one big discovery. I mean, it's been over over decades, but but the human brain will adapt to pretty much anything you put it up to. Some some people may excel a little bit faster, and some people may excel a, a little bit more advanced than others, but. I've really learned that anyone could pretty much do anything, not necessarily all to the same level of expertise, maybe, but anyone could do anything. So I've actually put that to a couple of different tests, some on myself and some on other people that that were unaware of what I was doing. And <laughs> and almost without fail, to some level, there's there's success there, right? So so it almost proves that it doesn't matter what it is. Now, these aren't situations where, you know, life and death or anything like that. But but obviously, you know, making yourself do something that you never even imagined possible. And then that's where I try to focus on training, right? So not, you know, we, we look at learning and development as, well, these people are smart so they could be engineers. And these people are good at, 
you know, you know, something else. So that I think anyone could be anything. Now, some will will excel a little bit more than others, but I think anyone could be anything if they just sat down and put the time and the effort in to learn, figure out the little tips and tricks and best practices, and then push themselves to actually do it. I think, I mean, and I learned that through the military because I got in the military, I got put in some situations that I never thought that I would come out the other side and not only come out the other side, but then months later, it's, you know, it's just an everyday practice of life after that, right? You know, I think this is some of the most optimistic science on earth, as far as I'm concerned, neuroplasticity and myelination and this idea that like, we can literally rewire our brains. Like it's not a figurative, like it's not a pattern of speech thing. Like when we do something repeatedly outside the comfort zone, the brain's like, oh, that was too hard. Let's wrap some extra myelin around those neurons so we can yeah. process that faster. And like, right. you know, a lot of people are familiar with the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours stuff. But the the science behind it, I think, is helpful to me because it's not just somebody's theory. You know, it's not just something the coach said, you know, practice more, right? But like, right. I don't know if you've seen any of these brain scans of like, violinists where the the part of the brain that controls motor skills for their left hand literally gets enlarged you know that part of the brain or like the london cabbies you know the part of the brain that deals with spatial reasoning literally gets enlarged you know yeah and yeah go ahead yeah so it's it's funny that you brought brought that up because i'm I'm a I'm a big reader of of brain technology. So there's there's a couple of different white papers and stuff that I'm researching right now on 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 that specific thing, right? So yeah. So it's and it's amazing, right? So when you when you read it, you're thinking like, okay, how would they know that? But when you put it into practice, it it works. So I'm not really sure. I'm not a I'm not a doctor, so I'm not really sure how the whole brain mapping thing works, which is funny because I scuba dive just for fun and I actually went on a diving trip. And I was there with a gentleman that created one of the first brain mapping softwares. Oh, so yeah. yeah, I was having conversations with him and it was really cool. I haven't talked to him since that that time, but it was actually pretty cool talking to him. Well, it, it's fascinating to me, you know, one of the things that we're doing more so these days is kind of our, our so our two big focuses are Greystoke Investments, our commercial real estate fund and syndications. And then Greystoke Media. So like this show and we produce some videos for some big media companies. And then we're, we're doing, we're moving more towards some like live events, doing stuff for clients. Like, so our two biggest populations that matter to us at Greystoke Investments are real estate brokers who can bring us like amazing off-market deals before they go show them to anybody else, right? We want to make friends with those guys. And then investors right. to give us the money to afford to buy those deals from the brokers, right? So <laughs> what we've been spending more time on is like, how do we do things to scratch these guys back first? How can we, how can we try to make them money just in their regular life so that we become friends so that they think of us first. Right. And really like other than just paying them cash, at least the thing that we've leaned towards is what can we teach them? What can we, you know, what experts can we give them access to? What programs can we help them with so that they can, whether it's, reducing their taxes, whether it's increasing productivity, whether it's increasing sales, whatever it is, you know, so we've kind of been doing different masterminds and coaching and different stuff like this, right? And I think about this all the time of exactly what you're talking about, because well, I'll give you an example. So I also do it for for free for like kind of my my volunteering, my charity work, right? Our charity child rescue right. association that combats trafficking. We, we support some other groups out there and 
sometimes we give them cash and sometimes we give them video help. And sometimes we, one of the things we do is, is try and help their executives think through accomplishing their mission faster. So last night I was sitting there talking to a guy who, you know, very successful entrepreneur made himself $10 million building his last company. Now he's, he's kind of giving back being the CEO of this group. Right. And we're talking about what he wants to get done, how fast he wants to get it done. And it wasn't an organization he built. So the habits everybody has, the way things happen, it's not, it's not what he's got in mind, right? So he's got to make some changes. And people have, people have a really easy mental pathway to do what they've always done, you know? And, and so this idea of like, okay, the brain has optimized those previous skill sets and you got very deep ruts that make it easy for the water to run that direction. How do we, how do we pave new roads another direction? You have, how do we get in enough meaningful repetitions to pave over those old ruts is, uh, right. You know, it's not a simple task all the time. I'm interested, uh, specifically from you on, well, any thoughts you have on that in general? And then I want to talk about technologies that can help with that. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. You started saying that I played golf yesterday and my wife and I were, were in, at one of the tee boxes and, and I hit a, I hit a poor shot, right. With my driver. And I just turned around and I told her, I'm like, I'm like, I know what I'm doing wrong. I could feel myself doing it. And I tell myself, don't do that. And I still do it. And it's just one of those things, right? It's just habits. You know, you just, your, your body's just programmed that it just becomes a habit. And so you have to figure out ways on, on how to one, stop doing that and then create something else in its place. Right. So same thing when they talk about stopping smoking, about chewing gum, or, you know, some people use a toothpick or something that may, so you're replacing one habit with the other, but the, the way that the brain works, and there's a lot of talks about this. So it's, this is not coming from me and it's all stuff I read and practice over the years, the way the brain works, people talk about repetitions, creating a habit, but it's not actually repetition of doing it. It's repetition of following that away into your short-term or long-term memory and then bringing it back up. So it's not a matter of repeating something, reading something over and over and over and over in one sitting in 30 minutes. It's the method of reading it and then maybe later in the day or tomorrow or even next week, right? going back and reading it again. And then so so it put it away. So you're not thinking about it and then bringing it back up right into the part of the brains called the hippocampus. So taking it from that short and long term memory, bringing it back in. The, that's what the repetition is, what they're referring to that creates the habits. So you have to be able to do that in, in everything that you do. That's why practice is so important and practice at golf or baseball or whatever, because you're almost slowing things down a little bit. So you could almost forcefully make your brain remember the correct technique versus just going up there and whacking away at the golf ball. You know, that's fascinating. I had never thought about it that way. You know, I, I'm such a fan of these books, you know, Norman Doidge, The Brain That Changes Itself, or Daniel Coyle, The Talent Code, or Anders Ericsson, Peak, you know, there's there's a bunch of books in the genre that I really enjoy. Right. But, you know, one of the principles they talk about all the time is this idea of reaching or stretching or doing outside, doing something outside the comfort zone. Like, and I haven't thought about it as this idea of, of getting it out of conscious memory and then having to withdraw it, you know, from long-term memory, because that isn't, that is a form of reaching that I don't know that I had put as much of a point on it because you're right. Sitting there and reading the same thing over and over in the same session while it's still in your working memory is not, you know, it, it would help it move towards encoding and long-term memory through repetitions, but you're not getting that stretching feeling. Like 
you know, the, this idea that the body works off pain, right? It, it optimizes for mm -hmm. survival. So like we go to the gym, if I do the same workout I've always done, I don't get any bigger muscles, right? I've got to do, I've got to do something outside the comfort zone. I've got to stretch. I've, I've got to stretch. I've got to reach and the, and do it enough times. The body goes, well, that was painful. Send some extra protein down there and build some bigger muscles. Cause it seems right. like we're going to keep doing <laughs> that. Right. Like I hadn't thought right. about it this way of like, practicing something or trying to recite or learn something, giving it enough time to leave your working memory and then try to try to withdraw it is a form of stretching. That's, you know, having to reach for that yeah. is painful. And if you keep doing that, the brain's going to go, we seem to keep doing this. <laughs> let's, let's make that more <laughs> easily accessible. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a reason. So you, we talked about special forces, right? So there's a reason why in bud school for the Navy SEALs, one of the first things they do is they go through bud school and they throw them into this freezing cold water and they make them sit there all night long. Or I mean, I didn't go through the school, so I don't know exactly the, the regiment, but, but you've seen it in movies and you've seen it, you know, on TV. There's a reason they do that is because once you achieve it one time, then your brain's able to pull it back up and go, I've done this before. And, and I know it's not going to be easy, but I've done it before. So I know I can do it. And your body just reacts to that. And it actually, you know, you know, warms your body up a little bit. So that way that cold's a little bit more tolerable. And I'm sure they probably do it in, in levels where, you know, it might be six hours first time, 12 hours another time. But, but if you're going to be expected to function in that type of environment, you have to program your brain to, to tell your body that you can cope with this type of, you know, exposure or whatever it is, it could be cold heat or whatever. And then, and then that's kind of the way that the training works. The military training is, and they were brilliant the way they came up with this. The military training is basically, you know, forget everything, you know, and then we're going to start you off at ground zero. And then we're going to program you to kind of be, accept and do and, and adapt to whatever environment that your your job function is going to be in, you know, that's, it, it's still prevalent today. I mean, it's just the way that the brain works. I and mean, people ask me all the time, it's like, oh, what's the longest you've ever been on the water on a submarine? So for myself, it's not the longest ever for anyone, but for me, it was 93 days. And they go, oh, wow, how did you do that? It's like, well, because I went on the water for 30 days and I went on the water for 50 days and then 60 days. And then so then 90 days wasn't that big of a deal for me. Right. I just learned how to adapt um, to those environments. So. Makes me think mm -hmm. of that Viktor Frankl book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he's he's saying, like, you know, we've got these men in here in the Nazi prison camp who said they were light sleepers. And at home, you know, if somebody even walked down the hallway, it would wake them up. And here they are in a room with. 150 men laying across each other, snoring, all sorts of loud noises, and they're sleeping like a baby. And he says, uh, right. you know, I can't remember who he's quoting, but he says, truly man can get used to anything, you know? And yeah. I, I'm yeah. glad you brought up special ops again. You know, we've had a number of them on the show. We've got volunteer veterans, you know, veterans who volunteer at child rescue. And, and then I've done a number, you know, they've been clients, they've been employees. And I, I'm fascinated with them because of this same thing of like taking you know, taking individuals and, and consistently and reliably producing such exceptional performers, you know, it's not up to chance. It's like, if they've got, if they've got certain physical characteristics beyond that, they just need the mental head game to stay around long enough. You know what I mean? And, right. and like the perfection on those trainings produces such exceptional performance right and you talked about adapting you know my my experience is like the higher the more elite level that they were in 
the more creative they are, the more adaptable, the less, the less anxiety they have because they have this like inner confidence that they can figure anything out. You know, they're so much more yeah. unclappable by like that creativity and adaptability. Like they just continue, like they get to buy stuff that the army would normally never let people buy. They get to try things that military would never let people try. And as a result, that right. becomes a habit of like, you know, no fail mission, just me, you know, like there's no, there's no off button. We, we're just got to figure this out, but they have these things in their environment that have taught them they can figure it out and they have figured it out repeatedly over and over. Right. Right. And that's why I guess to me, like seeing what they do, because I think when I see like Michael Phelps, the swimmer or Michael Jordan, the basketball player or something, there is this sense of like, <clears throat> yes, I know I can become a better swimmer, or basketball player, but come on. Like there, I have no delusion that I am at some point going to become Michael Jordan. Right. And there, <laughs> there's all these sense of like, you know, you have to be picked and you have to win the draft and all, you know, all these kind of things. Right. And I think sometimes we tell ourselves, you know, practice and repetitions and doing the right things over and over. But, but then we, we also say, but, and you better be six foot seven and you better be, you know, like, and these other things that we let ourselves off the hook on. When I look at these special ops guys, like they take, a lot of dudes who you wouldn't necessarily think are going to make it. And with the right mental head game, that system consistently produces it. And that's what's fascinating to me is they've done it with so many humans that the idea that other people could do it too, you don't have to be born that way. It just, it feels so real to me, you know? And so I look at skill sets, you know, my business hero is Warren Buffett. Hey, maybe I'll never reach Warren Buffett's track record or skill set, right? But when you start looking at how many people have followed the mindset that he has followed in his approach and have got exceptional results. They may not be Warren Buffett results, but you know, I was watching a Google talk yesterday about the guy from Markel. I can't remember his name right now, who grew their share price from $8 to $800. Just, just practicing what Warren says to practice enough times. You know, and when you hear enough of those stories of what Bruce Flatt did at Brookfield or Howard Marks at Oak Tree, you start going like, well, if enough other people have learned it, maybe I could learn it, too. And I, that's the optimism for me. Yeah. Yeah. So the I'm not going to remember what the book is. I read it so long ago. Dale Carnegie book. Not how to influence, whatever and influence people. No, 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 not that one. There's another one. Basically, whatever you train your mind to think that you are, you will become a little real short read. I can't remember the name of it. Is it similar anyway. to like As a Man Thinketh or one of those books? It's similar to that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But, you know, so I actually had a person that I knew. I wouldn't say that they were a great friend, but they were always afraid. They always brought up that they were afraid of cancer. So, you know, and they brought it up often. And so in the end, it's kind of, it's a sad story, but in the end, and this, this was probably 10 years ago, this happened. We found out that this person had cancer and died like within past than two months from cancer. And then we were all sitting around talking and, and it wasn't a close personal friend. I just saw this person in passing from time to time, but they would always bring up, you know, uh, something about cancer or they wouldn't eat certain things because they would you know, they're afraid that it would cause cancer and, you know, exposure, like, you know, you know, cell phones back in the day, they thought it would, and they would always bring these things up. And then this person passed away of cancer. And it's like, my gosh, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm wondering if they brought this to fruition just by training their brain, right. To, <laughs> okay, to kind of adopt that philosophy. This, like, I, I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> this is bad news for me because 
I'm always joking around with my family, you know, about how I don't want to die choking on a hot dog. I want to like either I want to die in an avalanche <laughs> snowboarding, doing what I love, or I want to get shot by a human trafficker, like doing something that mattered, or I want to die of old age. Well, my business here at Warren Buffett is always talking about like, you know, about old age. And he, and like when people ask him what he wants on his, on his gravestone, he says, man, that guy was old. You know, so maybe I got to leave out the other two, Dwayne. I got to, I got to focus on dying of old age so I can manifest it. Right, right. Yeah. And it depends on where, where you ski, right? I mean, that avalanche thing could, could happen at a moment's notice, but the hot dog one, I would just forget about it or don't ever eat a hot dog. Uh, Yeah. Not a huge temptation at this point in life. Like as a five-year-old, very into, very into the uh, five-year-old birthday party food. But so tell me this, as you do this work. You know, we obviously share some some interest in common, hence the reason we we struck up our conversation years ago at the conference. But tell me about technologies that you feel like are helpful. You know, there's a CEO listening today, there's an executive listening today, and they want to speed this up and and they don't know technology wise where to look. What what are some thoughts about how to, you know, pave some new roads over old ruts, how technology can help? Okay. Yeah. So from a technology standpoint alone, I will say that we're probably in a better place when it comes to learning and development than we've ever been for using technology because we have so many different, so many different tools that we can adopt. And, and one of the best uh, practices that you could kind of take away from a learning and development standpoint is that a blending, a blended method works best in any situation, right? So when we talk about blended, meaning could be a little bit of computer-based learning, could be a little bit of mentorship, could be a little bit of classroom type training, maybe some self, self-improvement self type of training materials on, on LinkedIn learning or something of that nature. But then we start getting to the more advanced stuff where we start adopting like AR, VR, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality as part of a training and learning process. That's where we could start building in those habits of overriding some of those ruts. So now the, the one thing that that I will say about AR and VR, it, it's becoming more and more affordable. So you look at well, we're doing some stuff with with the Oculus headset. So Oculus is, was purchased by Facebook. The headsets now are reduced down to I think they're around two ninety nine for one headset. So it makes it pretty affordable. So obviously you either have to do your own programming or you have to purchase something off the shelf from, you know, from that standpoint of the material, but it it works really well in certain things when you start building in certain habits of, if you want to create some standardization on, you know, step one, two, three, four, and five in the correct order, right? So there may be five ways to, to, you know, perform a task, but if you want to standardize it so that there's one way for, you know, either for efficiency or just to create standardization for, for measuring metrics or whatever that might be. That's actually a good way to do that. Getting more advanced than that, you know, if you're going to do something that's, I mean, the military uses it for, for different types of weapons training. So that way you go into a simulated environment. Obviously, if you blow yourself up, right, you take the goggles off and start over where, you know, back in the, back in the fifties and sixties, right. You know, you have an accident and there's going to be some, some stuff to clean up, but yeah, so there, there's that as far as technology goes, but I think the biggest thing about technology where I like to think of technology is that technology is a tool. It's not a solution. So the first thing you have to do is identify what you want to address as your problem then collect data to to see what solutions are possible and and not necessarily 
have a solution in mind. So you, you want to look at things in a manner of like solving the problem and making them better, right? So what I do is more strategic. So I'm looking at enterprise-wide, how to make everything, how to improve everything from a strategic standpoint. So by incorporating one tool that fixes one problem that may increase profit margins by a half a percent is not really what I focus on. So how do we change the organization so that the organization as a whole is a differentiator from other organizations to make them more profitable yeah. in that manner? Can you give us an yeah. example of, of using Oculus? You're one of those. VR yeah, so, yeah, so Oculus is... A, a virtual reality headset and basically you purchase the headset you and anyone can purchase them they use them a lot in gaming they're starting to become more and more uh, familiar in the learning and development industry simply because that they're affordable but you actually have a program that you uh, program into it and there's a lot of parameters that you have to uh, to work on right so there's you know safety and, and operational zones and stuff but that's all programmed into the training and what you would do is you actually put on the goggles and say, I'll use some foundational type training to say, all right, if we want someone to to measure the diameter of some bar stock, you know, so basically you'll go into the headset, you have hand controllers and you could point to the bar stock, picking the right materials, the right size bar stock. You could pick up micrometers or veneer calipers and actually measure and get a measurement on it. And depending on how you hold the device, right, you'll get an accurate or inaccurate measurement. And it could have feedback functions where it could vibrate or it could just you know, uh, tell you it's incorrect and make you repeat it until you get it correct. Or it could be something as far as uh, walking into a space and things like health and safety. You know, if you walk into a space and then you're in your VR headset, and you look at a fire extinguisher, then you could actually pick that up. That's data that you could get back out of the program. And so as a person's going through, you could see what their focal points are. You could see how long they, they looked at an object. You say, okay, identify all the safety hazards in the room. And there'll be some oily rags uh, on the floor. You know, if they just move past it, you'll know, right? Because they don't fixate on that object. But if they fixate on that object, right, whether they pick it up or not, you at least tell that that was a thought process for them. Now, they didn't make the right decision by not picking it up, but at least they recognize it, that this could be something that, and so that's that's how you focus that type of training. Uh, I'm using very foundational stuff so people yeah. understand, but you could get very, very complex with a lot of this. You know, what's interesting is people have been talking about this for years, and I've always thought like, well, that's a big hurdle to do that. And like, you know, a lot of times the folks in HR, the folks in training, they don't have the biggest budget. So they don't, maybe they aren't always as creative, right? But, and, and part of it's constraints, you know, the resources, right? But I, I got to do this cool project. I worked for this client, it's called the Ladato Sea Challenge. It was this like social impact fund with the Vatican. We got to go over and I thought it was super cool. I hadn't been to Italy before. We got to go do an event at the Vatican. Like Dan, it was the, Number two Cardinal, Cardinal Turkson and Danny DeVito were co-hosted the thing, you know. And there's all these like, you know, room full of billionaires funding these social enterprises, right? But they right. gave us like at parties like that, you get way better swag. Okay. So yeah. So they gave us these 360 cameras that go on an iPhone. And what's funny is at the time I thought, like, you know, this is a really cool gadget, and but like I don't see myself using it, you know. But as you're saying this, I'm thinking, man, you know, anybody listening today, CEO, entrepreneur, executive, whoever it is that wants to like do something big and drastic and they need, hey, we, we really need people to get meaningful repetitions in. 
the idea of like going and filming something once on a 360 camera on an iPhone and then having that go to the Oculus and like, you know, for 300 bucks, people can put this headset on and have that you were there feeling, you know, that's a drastically different experience than just watching video on the screen. Like I love video. We're, we're such a video first company, but you know, those, those games, those Oculus games, I played those at, I've got a client with one of them, you know, and I, I tried it out. It's like genuinely immersive. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. And you know, yeah. for, for like probably less than 500 bucks or less than 600 bucks, training departments could start building some of that stuff themselves, you know? And I, I'd never yeah. made that connection until you were just talking. Yeah. So, so the, so a step down from that, we've actually used GoPros. Um, mm. So the, so GoPros actually have a chest mount. I, I, I think one package comes with the chest mount, which we started out with that, but we noticed that the hands always block things. And so you could actually program, uh, you could synchronize the, the, the GoPro cameras. And we, we came up with these uh, clip mounts because they have to wear bump caps, right? So for head protection. And so we came up with these mounts that you mount them on there. And then you could uh, synchronize two-way radios. So you could actually have someone practicing and someone watching and communicating back and forth without them being in the same environment. And, and it sounds, it sounds like, okay, well, why would you want to do that? But we're talking about manufacturing environments. When you are working on a piece of equipment that is the size of say an average size bedroom, maybe a 12 by 12, that's the size of the piece of equipment. Well, if you have to repair something, you're inside there. Well, there's not enough space for the student to go in there and doing it with a lack of experience and someone else inside there to watch what they're doing and make sure that they're they're not, you know, they're not doing anything that's unsafe or, or doing anything that might create damage. So that's a great way that you could actually use some of that technology. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. So that's a good segue to kind of get you from, you know, not ha- using technology to using something and then moving on. The VR experience is, is by far, it's, it's unreal how much you actually, once you get used to the headset, you just feel so immersed into it. So my my grandson actually had a headset and I was playing with it and he started talking to me and I was so into the game. I was looking for him. He was talking to me and I could hear him talking. He's a physical person. And, and I'm like looking around in the game. I'm like, I don't see you. Where are you? He's like, I'm standing right in front of you. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I just got so immersed into the game. I just, you know, my brain thought he was in the game with me. So, yeah, so that was kind of uh, kind of surreal for me doing that little exercise with them. You're such a manufacturing specialist. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting to me about some of the changes in the last number of years with manufacturing is through training, you know, people who really, really live that operational excellence, like full, full scale and add some Mm -hmm. technologies, how there's been onshoring. You know, I, I went to Japan with uh, these guys that make safes. I think it was these guys and they have a plant in China, plant in Mexico and a plant in the U S and their U.S. plant was outproducing their China plant. And it wasn't because of cheap labor, because they didn't have that. But, like, this, like, deep commitment to, like, hardcore operational excellence training and, and some technologies. And they're actually producing, they're manufacturing cheaper in America than in the developing world. And it might have been somebody else, but I think it was those guys. And that's fascinating to me that, you know, we, we, we accept so many things of, like, oh, no you know, manufacturing in the developing world will always be cheaper or things like this. But there's folks that are proving that wrong. And I think that's 
anyways, it's a really interesting development for me to think about like the coming decades as because there are so many advantages, shipping, timeframes, so many things if you can produce closer to where your customer yeah. is. And yet you have to have that mindset to believe it's possible. But having other people set the example probably makes that easier. Do you have any thoughts or comments about that? I do. So you actually had a podcast not long ago. I think it was in February. Gentleman, Aviv Shagley, I believe his last name is pronounced. You know, and he his your podcast was on the simplicity as a competitive advantage. And, and he talked about, you know, the old fashioned and archaic way that we produce energy. And, and I believe the whole podcast was, you know, around solar energy. And how do we restructure that? Well, it's the same way in manufacturing. I mean, we, you know, we've done this for since the Industrial Revolution. We've done this the same way. And and I think the thought process is that how do we add something that's more advanced to a system that we already have? I think we need to change that. And 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 I believe it's happening, right? So with the they call it Industry 4.0, but but more importantly with smart manufacturing. I think we're starting to figure out there is a better way to do this, not because the old way was not productive and not uh, profitable or things of that nature, but we need to evolve, right? So I always think back to the, you know, to the blockbuster, right? So yeah, 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 we could go online, you know, or, you know, but at the same time, you know, we're making money in the store. Why would we stop selling the videotapes, right? So, or stop renting the videotapes. So at some point, you're going to have to evolve into something bigger uh, and better. And I think through data, we can actually figure out what those things are. The answers are not just laying on the table, obviously, or everyone would just do it. But But I think for the most part, manufacturing is just so archaic. We need to restructure and rethink about how we're looking at it. So I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example. How do we run out of toilet paper on the shelves in the grocery stores? Then that seemed like it would be almost impossible. Like, hey, just make some more toilet paper, right? But the thing about it is, is it's a re, you know the supply chain was just so reactive that you know they waited until I shouldn't say they waited because you know who's they, but but you know companies saw that the shelves were empty and then tried to respond to that where if we're using data, you should be able to see that. You should be able to forecast that. Now, I'm not saying there wouldn't be you know, a, a lack of supply, but it shouldn't have been as drastic as it was if we had a better supply chain system. And that is all through open source sharing of data, right? So if you're protective and you want to take your data and keep it to yourself and not, you know, not let any of your suppliers or your customers see that because everything's proprietary, then that's fine. You're still going to live in this archaic little bubble. And so, and so that prevents you from moving to the next level. So I think that is the biggest change that manufacturing has to make. And I think a lot of manufacturers are trying to figure out how to do it. I don't think they know how to do it yet, but a lot of manufacturers are thinking about how to do it and how to move to that next step. Yeah, there's a lot of waiting that is so acceptable in manufacturing, isn't it? And, and even in things that you don't think of as traditional manufacturing, but where it's like, take this, package it there, move it to this, send it to this you know, that they probably don't consider themselves manufacturing, but have basically the same characteristics. There's just, right. there's so much waiting that people have mentally accepted as that's okay to wait, you know, and there's just so much more possible when people start going like, well, what if we didn't wait? <laughs> what if we, what if we did something now? Or, you know, instead of saying, oh yeah, we should have that by next week. It's like, well, what would it take to have that in five minutes? You know, and like, Asking right. those provoking questions and maybe you can't have it in five minutes, but maybe you could have it in five hours instead of five days, you know, and right. But it's that mindset of 
asking for it, right? Well, listen, yeah. this has been a super fun conversation for me. My my favorite question of late is asking people, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Maybe that'll be a good one for us to end with. The best pieces of advice. Yeah, one of them. I actually I have a I have a I have a I have a lot of them. But the and I don't necessarily know that that it pertains to learning and development or manufacturing or military no. or anything like no. that. Okay. Uh, but Maybe but I think the best piece of advice that I received that I really didn't grasp until I got a little older was is that you you don't know what, what people you don't know the situations or the the complexity of things that people are dealing with. Right. So whenever you meet them to accept them the way that they are and not what you expect them to be. So and I'll give you a good example. If you know, if you run into a a client or a colleague or something like that and you're saying, you know, my expectation is that they're going to provide this information so I could do my job and and provide uh, something to someone else. And and they don't provide that information to you either right away or, or at all. Right. Don't automatically jump to the assumption that you know, that, that they're unconcerned about the, you know, about doing their job or something of that nature, because everybody's going through different things and, and, and at different times and what you're dealing with always seems to be the most important thing, but there's millions of people out there. Right. And if you think that you're the most important out of all those millions of people, then I would tell you that you're wrong. So other people matter as well. Right. So that's probably the most, the best advice I've ever received. So. You know, it's so simple, but I think about being frustrated, whether it's frustrated with staff, frustrated with clients, frustrated with co-founders, you know, stuff like this. And it'd probably be a a very useful thing to remind myself of at those times. Hmm. I'm not saying I don't get frustrated. (laughs) I just, I I just try not to, to react with frustration. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is great. Listen, uh, if people want to connect with you or follow what you do, where are the best places? Uh, so they can they can connect with me on LinkedIn. My last name is spelled H E B E R T. First name Dwayne D U A N E. Obviously, I am I'm at Tulane USME as a learning and development analyst. So reaching out through the organization is acceptable as well. And I just want to say I really appreciate uh, you having me on. It's been a great conversation. Hopefully, I I wasn't didn't go down too much of a road with my stories, but yeah, it just kind of brought back some memories and kind of got excited about talking about those things. So it was a lot of fun for me. We love the stories. Well, thanks again for doing this. You're welcome. Bye, everyone.